This morning we're looking at Mark chapter 7 verses 1 through 13 as is indicated on the screen there. And, and this really is a large, a part of a larger section that runs down through verse 23. And, and so I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to read the first 13 verses today. But I want us to be aware that this is kind of a mini-series. That this week and next week really go together uh, in, in some important ways. But we're going to break them apart and, and kind of... Make it two sermons instead of one really long sermon. So, this is what Mark writes. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Most gracious Father, we thank you for your word. And ask that as we look at this challenging passage, that we would have our eyes opened by your Spirit, and that having them opened, we would see where our true comfort is, in Christ and in Him alone. It's in His name we pray. Amen. There's a number of ways that you may have heard this passage preached. One way is to say, man, can you believe how ridiculous the Jews were being about all their traditions. Aren't you glad we're not like them? And another way that you may have heard it preached, if you've been in very many Reformed churches, is you may go, see, this is what was happening during the Reformation. Can you believe the medieval Catholic Church was doing all of this? So glad we're not like them. I want to start at a different place, though. I want to start here. We are all self-justifying, self-interested people. See, I, I, this does speak to the Jewish people in the first century and what they were doing. It does speak to, to some of the things that, that were going on in, in medieval Catholicism at the time of the Reformation that Martin Luther and, and all of those other men fought against. By the way, I learned this weekend that right now is the 500th anniversary of the Diet of Worms where Martin Luther supposedly stand, or said, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. That 500 years ago, right now, that was going down. 
There were issues that needed to be dealt with then. But when we take those routes, it's all too easy for us to miss what this passage says to us. On the one hand, we know we're not as we should be. And so we seek to justify ourselves. But on the other hand, we are insatiably focused on ourselves. That's why I said we're, we're self-justifying, self-interested people. All of us. I, I'll lead the way. Our solution, when, when we approach life as we see in this passage, is to create a morality that both serves our interest and makes us feel righteous when we do it. That's what we often do. We come up with some form of morality that serves our interests so that everybody around us will say, oh yeah, look how moral they are. Look how good they are. And and makes us feel good for doing it. I'm going to say right up front, a better solution is to recognize that our self-interest is precisely what created the need to be justified in the first place and to call out to God for mercy in Jesus Christ. That's where we're going. It's our self-interest that created the need to be justified. And that's why it never works for us to be self-justifying, self-interested people. It's a hamster wheel of sin. Rather, what we need to do is call out for mercy. So, that's what's in view here in this passage. If we look at the first five verses, we see uh, kind of in, in bold relief this penchant for self-justification. The, the Pharisees had passed on all of this oral Torah, this oral law tradition. And what they did is, is they wanted to make sure that they didn't ever break the law. They, they didn't want to do the wrong things. So they built hedges around the law. So in other words, if the line... You know, if the line was here and you weren't to go that way, they would draw a new line up here so that you didn't even get close. And all of these laws that they, that they had eventually got recorded in a book, a large book called the Mishnah, which is a, a written record of the oral tradition of the, the rabbis, the Pharisaical rabbis, that went back to when the second temple was built up through like 70 A.D. or so. The Mishnah collected all of these laws, and they were extensive. I mean, the, the, this is just a sampling that is provided for us here in Mark. For, for instance, here's one of the laws that you can find in the Mishnah. You may not know this, but Daniel... Part, several chapters of Daniel are written in Aramaic instead of Hebrew. And so it makes it fun when you're trying to translate and then all of a sudden there's like all these words and nothing works the same anymore. It's because it's a different language. And in the Mishnah, it says that if you handle a copy of Daniel in Aramaic, you become unclean. <laughs> if it's been translated to Hebrew, everything's good. But if it's in Aramaic, you become unclean. Those were the kinds of hedges and the extent that they went to to make sure that they weren't crossing any lines at all. And so they come to Jesus and they want to know, 
Why do your disciples not walk according to the, to the tradition of elders, but eat with defiled hands? This wasn't a question of hygiene. This wasn't your mom or dad looking at you when you've come in from playing and seeing that you're filthy and saying, go wash up for dinner. That's not what was going on here. This was an issue of your worthiness to participate in life. That's what was going on here. And they were noticing that Jesus' disciples weren't keeping all the rules that they were keeping. And they wanted to know why. Notice they don't say, or they don't ask rather, why do your disciples not walk according to the Torah, the law of Moses, but eat with defiled hands? That's not their question. Their question, excuse me, their question is, why don't your disciples walk according to the tradition of the elders? Why don't they keep all the extra morality that we've gathered up over the last 500 years to keep us from breaking the law? To, To make us appear holy? Because we stay so far away from breaking the law. Now, verses 6 and 8 is really kind of the crux of this passage. And so we're going to come back to that in just a minute. Because that's going to be kind of, you know, the big shadoo at the end. So let's skip down to verses 9 through 13. And here we see kind of where self-justification, the flip side of that coin, is self-interest in our pursuit of self-justification. Jesus has just said in verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And then he explains what he means by that. They had come up, another one of the laws that they had come up with was this idea of of Corbin. And the whole idea of it was if, if I have this land or this property, and according to the Bible, I'm to care for my parents, honor your father and mother and provide and all of these things, And so as as parents get older, their kids start providing. If I declare what I have to be Corbin, which means given to God, then guess what? I still get the benefit of the property. I can even still collect the interest on it. But I don't have to give anything to my parents. I don't have to share. Kids, this is not a thing anymore. I don't have to do it. I can get the interest, but I'm free from honoring my father and mother as the Bible commands. And Jesus says, you set aside the commandment. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. See, here... The the other side of the self-justification that we saw in the first few passages is this action of self-interest. They've come up with rules whereby they can look like they're doing these great things for God. I've, I've given all my stuff to God. It's all given to Him. But what that was keeping them from doing was actually keeping God's Word. See, their self justification, the other side of it, is self-interest. So now back to verses 6 through 8. 
When the Pharisees had asked Jesus this question, his response was, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Let's stop right there for just a second. A hypocrite isn't someone necessarily here that isn't doing the things. These people were zealous for getting it right. They were absolutely all about getting it right. So the hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about here isn't of the sort where you say, oh, I'm holy, but you're living like hell. That's not what was going on with them. The hypocrisy that they were experiencing, that they were endeavoring into, was a type of hypocrisy that recognizes that God, that his steadfast love is forever, that recognizes the the promises of Abraham, that recognizes all of these things, but then decides to rest on their own works. This is what Paul in Galatians calls falling away from grace. We usually think of falling away from grace as like, you know, when somebody falls from grace, they were in some grand position and then they started sinning and so they disqualified themselves from that position. That's not what Paul talks about as falling away from grace. What Paul talks about as falling away from grace is turning from Jesus back to the law for your justification. That's falling away from grace. That's the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus is concerned about with the Pharisees. The kind that turns away from the grace and the mercy and the steadfast love of God in order to pretend that they're doing all the things when actually they're sinners just like you and I. What was it that Isaiah wrote exactly? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, that's the issue. They were doing all the stuff. They would have made you and I just look like complete pagans. They, I mean... They had the parapets around their roof and the tassels and the, you know, uncut corners of their beards and the clean food and all the things. All the things. But their hearts were far from God. They didn't know Him. They only knew their works. They only knew their traditions. And so Jesus rightly assesses their situation saying, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. See, this wasn't a new issue in Jesus' day, though. He's quoting Isaiah, who had said the same thing to Israel. And it wasn't an issue that was just limited to Jesus' day. Paul's basically dealing with the same issue in Galatia when he writes that letter. And of course, we see this kind of thing play out, this self-justifying self-interest play out in our own lives constantly, don't we? Traditions of men can supplant Scripture in, in two seemingly opposite ways. On the one hand, traditions of men can supplant Scripture. They can supplant the Word of God by addition, and, and they can also do it by subtraction. 
When they do it by addition, what happens is, is legalism, and, and you see this kind of in certain particular situations, and what we do is we add moral particulars to God's Word. We add, you know, voting a certain way. We, we, we add entertainment choices. We, we add, you know, thoughts about drinking alcohol, some even about drinking coffee. We, we add rules about clothing. We add rules about friend choices we, and who you're hanging out with and, and the kinds of jobs. We add moral particularities. We build hedges all over the place. Now, I'm not saying there's no standard for the Christian life, right? So if that's what you're hearing, rewind it, play it again. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is when we start to go down this road of self-justification, one way we often undermine the Word of God is by adding moral particularities to Scripture that aren't actually there and demanding that other people keep them. The other way we can do it, well, first let me say, when we do that, oftentimes there's a fear that's at work. And oftentimes the fear that is at work when we're doing that is being challenged or thought less of by the religious folk. We don't want that. We don't want people to think I don't have integrity or, or, or that I'm not really serious about my faith or that I'm not an upstanding guy or, or a man or a woman of my word. Or, or We don't want that. And so oftentimes we'll just kind of go along to get along with these moral particularities, adding them and adding them and adding them. On the other side, when it comes to these issues of subtraction, we, we tend to go kind of rather than a legalistic way, this kind of libertine or, or antinomian way. And what we do is we subtract moral particularities. And we say, oh, well, that's not, that was then, this is now. First century was a different time. We've got to bridge this unbridgeable gap of 2,000 years and figure out how to apply this. And they were thinking about things differently than we do now. They didn't know things that we know now. The DSM-4 hadn't been updated yet. And so now we don't have to worry about all of these things. And we subtract moral particularities. And here's... The reality, when we do this, we're also living in fear. But it's not fear of the religious folk so much. It's oftentimes fear of the secular folk. We don't want to be thought a bigot or closed-minded or narrow or whatever else it might be. Now, here's what's interesting. This isn't easily, though, though there's temptation to make this kind of a, a conservative and liberal thing, it's not at all. We, we all do it on both sides all the time, constantly. Constantly. If we're on one side of the aisle, we, we add certain moral particularities and subtract others. If, if we're a little bit more this way, we add certain other moral particularities and subtract different ones. Why? Because we're all self-justifying, self-interested people. Every last one of us. Welcome to church. Hope you've been encouraged today. <laughs> That's the reality. We all do this. But here's the kicker. 
As I just kind of hinted at, both of those variations set aside the commandments of God and hold to traditions of men. Saying for the sake of one side, I'm not going to do this, but I will do this. For the sake of the other side, I'm not going to do that, but I will do that. See, the reality is both sides of this coin are really the same thing. Both sides are doing the exact same thing and shouting one another down for doing it. Have you ever noticed that in, in so many of these heated conversations that we have about all of these different things? that so often you can just reverse the role, change the issue and reverse the role. And now this one who was high and mighty and, and moral is now ignoring certain things. And this one who was ignoring certain things is clinging to the law for their life. Because we're all self-justifying, self-interested people. That's just what we do. It goes all the way back to the garden Think about it. Eve is faced with the serpent. Adam there with her. And how did they act? Complete self-interest. Seeking to justify themselves. Oh, we'll, we'll have knowledge of good and evil. He's withholding that from us. And that's a good thing to have. We're all in. Snack snack. And that's how it's been ever since. Look at Israel's history. Look at the history of the church. Look at your own life. Look at my life. It's just what we do. And the tragedy is that the end of both groups is the very same. It doesn't matter what you add and what you subtract. If you're looking to any particular set or subset of anything, if you're operating from this natural position of self-justifying self-interest, it doesn't matter what you hold and don't hold. It doesn't matter what you boycott or don't boycott. It doesn't matter who you vote for or don't vote for. It doesn't matter what you drink or what you don't drink. It doesn't matter what you watch or what you don't watch, what you wear or what you don't wear. It all ends in the same place. That's why there has to be a better way. And the good news is that there is actually a better way. A much better way. And it starts with admitting that this passage isn't just talking about the Pharisees back in, you know, 30 AD or whenever it was that this was going down. And it wasn't just talking about the medieval Roman church back in the 1500s with all of the relics and all of the things they were doing. And it's not just talking about stodgy Presbyterians with our Sabbatarian bent and, and all of the, the you know, fancy things that we do in the bow tie. No, it's talking about every last one of us. Every one of us. sees himself or sees herself in this mirror that Mark's held up for us. The better way starts with admitting that. 
And then continuing on to admit, it's gotten me nowhere. All of my self-interested self-justification has gotten me nowhere. Not a step closer to God. Not an ounce more holy. Nowhere. And then it, it drives us ultimately to passages like Psalm 130. Where the psalmist writes, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. See, that's what we need. Is mercy. Because our self-interested self-justification hasn't gotten us anywhere. Sure, we may have all kinds of people thinking, man, they are really serious about their faith. They really know their Bible. They, I mean, just they're always, they know their theology. They do family worship like every night. It's amazing how holy they are. But God's like, yeah, but he yells at his kids during family worship every night. He, he only read his Bible to say that he read his Bible. He only knows his theology because he knew I need to have the right answers when people ask. But he doesn't actually believe a word of it. What we need is mercy. Sure, family worship is great. Reading your Bible is fantastic. Good theology, it's the stuff. But what we need is mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, the psalmist goes on to say, O Lord, who could stand? None of us. But with you... There is forgiveness that you may be feared. I will wait for the Lord for my soul waits. And in his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Plentiful Redemption. I love that. Because it means that you're not going to out the blood of Jesus. You haven't out the blood of Jesus, and you won't. His redemption is plentiful. His steadfast love endures forever. And he will redeem Israel all the people of God from all their iniquities. And this is exactly what we read earlier in Mark's gospel. When when people came challenging Jesus once again, asking, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's just a different form of the question we're looking at in in chapter 7. Why doesn't he draw that hedge around these people so that they know they're on the outside and so that he remembers they're on the outside and doesn't go belly up to the bar with them? Why why has he forgotten 
who they are? And Jesus' response is, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We forget that when we act in self-interested self-justification. When, we, when that's our posture in life, we forget Jesus. He's gone immediately. You can't act in self-interested self-justification and cling to Jesus. Because if you think you're righteous, he's flat out saying, I'm not here for you. I'm here to redeem sinners. And so unless you can come to me admitting that you're self-interested, self-justification, that all your attempts have gotten you nowhere, I'm not for you. But if you come to me admitting you're a sinner, calling out for mercy, I'm for you. And you have redemption. And you have forgiveness. And you have life. And you stand justified before the holy God of all creation. And you're invited up onto that Hebrews mountain where we're throwing a party with all the festal lambs and all the angels and it's just going wild with grace. If you come to me admitting you've gotten nowhere on your own, all of that is yours for free. Because I have redeemed you. This is why we don't need to be so quick to just look at the Pharisees or the medieval Roman Catholic Church and go, can you believe it? Because as soon as we do that, we're doing the very thing. We're doing the very thing they're doing. We're walking in, pointing to the sinners, and saying, so glad I'm not like him. I don't do those things. But when we come and say, I've gotten nowhere on my own. All I have is Christ. What we hear is what we started our worship service with. Come, you sinner, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, love, and power. Come, you thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty. Glorify true belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come, you weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. When we tarry in that posture of self-interested self-justification, we lose Christ. But when we recognize, I've gotten nowhere and I need mercy, we get it. We get it. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would strengthen us to admit that we've gotten nowhere and that our only hope is Jesus Christ. We admit, Father, that we are so given to the traditions and, and just pouring ourselves into the things that signal our righteousness. Signal how seriously we take the faith. While our hearts are far from you. By your spirit, Father, help us to call out for the mercy that we need. The mercy that is ours in Christ Jesus. Amen.